Benjamin now recognized that they were ready to hear and understand the remainder of his words, because at last they were awakened to a sense of their nothingness and their worthless and fallen state, aware that they could only put their trust in the Lord, keeping his commandments, believe in God, believe that ye must repent, always retain in remembrance the greatness of God, and your own nothingness, and his goodness and long-suffering. If ye do this, ye will always rejoice and be filled with the love of God. That being so, ye will not have a mind to injure one another, but to live peaceably, and to render to every man according to that which is his due. And who decides what is due him? Not you. The Lord will tell you that. And ye will not suffer your children that they go hungry, or naked, or transgress the laws of God. Lunch will be provided, and ye will teach them to love one another, and to serve one another, with no fighting or quarreling among themselves. This was not to be a competitive society. And beyond your family, ye yourselves will succor those that stand in need of your succor. Ye will administer of your substance unto him. A beggar is one who asks, for some reason or other, not having what he needs. Ye will not suffer that the beggar putteth up his petition to you in vain, and turn him out to perish. He begs because he is hungry, and we must all eat to stay alive. To turn any beggar down, for all you know, is to sentence him to death. It has happened. The usual pious appeal to the work ethic, there is no free lunch, will not do. Perhaps thou shalt say, the man has brought upon himself his misery, Therefore I will not give unto him of my food, nor impart unto him of my substance, that he may not suffer, for his punishments are just. I worked for mine. Indolent and unworthy the beggar may be, but that is not your concern. It is better, said Joseph Smith, to feed ten impostors than to run the risk of turning away one honest petition. Anyone who explains why he denies help to another who needs it, says Benjamin, hath great cause to repent, and hath no interest in the kingdom of God, which kingdom is built up on the law of consecration. For behold, are we not all beggars? That is no mere rhetoric. It is literally true. We are all praying for what we have not earned. No one is independent. Do we not all depend upon the same being, even God, for food and raiment, and for gold, and for silver, and for all the riches which we have? You are dependent for your lives, and for all that ye have and are. And that is just what you must consecrate to the building up of the kingdom. Oh, then, how ye ought to impart of the substance that ye have one to another. We all give, and we all receive, and never ask who is worthy and who is not for the simple reason that none of us is worthy, all being unprofitable servants. And if ye judge the man who asks for your substance that he perish not, and find him unworthy, how much more just will be your condemnation for withholding your substance, which doth not belong to you, but to God, who wants you to hand it on, and is testing you to see just how willing you are to hand it back to him when he asks for it not at some comfortably unspecified date, but right now. Benjamin says he is speaking here to the rich, but the poor may not hold back either, for everyone should have enough, but not wish for more. Hence the poor who want to be rich, who covet that which they have not received, 
are also guilty. In giving, the poor may keep what is sufficient for their needs, and food, clothing, and shelter covers it. For the rule is summed up simply, that every man should impart of his substance to the poor, every man according to that which he hath, which is also the wording of Deuteronomy. For all have a right to food, clothing, shelter, and medical care, both spiritually and temporally, according to their wants. Benjamin ends with the wise remark that no list of prohibitions would be sufficient to keep the people from sin. Finally, I cannot tell you all the things whereby ye may commit sin, for there are diverse ways and means, even so many that I cannot number them. Instead of telling them what they should not do, he has told them what they absolutely must do, the minimum if they would expect God's blessings. If one who has more than he really needs, and without what he truly needs, he would, in fact, be one of the truly needy, withholds it from those who do not have enough, he is stealing, holding on to that which doth not belong to you, but to God, who wants to see it distributed equally. And that ends King Benjamin's discourse, devoted not to pious and high-sounding generalities, but to the rule that whoever has more than he can eat must share to the limit of his resources with those who do not have enough. Two things are stressed in the address, need and the feeling of dependence. As to need, not a word is said from first to last about hard work, thrift, enterprise, farsightedness, and so on the usual preludes to the no-free-lunch lecture. And woe to the man who questions another's qualifications for lunch, for the same hath great cause to repent. The second issue is independence. Charged with a special emotional impact for Americans, the word has become a fetish for the Latter-day Saints and led them into endless speculations and plans. They that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare, says Paul, all of which the Lord has strictly forbidden. In the scriptures, the word independent occurs only once, describing the church with no reference to any individual. The church may stand independent above all other creatures because it is entirely dependent on my providence. It is dependence that is important for Benjamin, total dependence on God. And if you serve him with your whole heart and with your whole soul, you are free from dependence on any other being. In the law of Moses, the Lord's release cancels all indebtedness of man, while God transfers his claims on our indebtedness to the poor. It is through them that he asks us to pay our debt to him. Let us refer back for the moment to Satan's promise of independence. When, following Satan's instructions, Cain murdered his brother Abel for the sake of getting gain, he declared his independence, and Cain gloried in that which he had done, saying, I am free. Surely the flocks of my brother falleth into my hands. Recently, this gospel was proclaimed by one of the richest Americans addressing the student body of Ohio State University on TV. There is nothing that gives freedom, he said, like bucks in the bank. This seems to be the policy we are following today, and there is no doubt whose policy it is. Feeding the Multitudes With the coming of the Lord in the meridian of time, the feasts of thanksgiving and supplication continued, 
Yet without the shedding of blood, except at Easter, when the Paschal Lamb, like the earlier blood offerings of the temple, remained a similitude of the great atoning sacrifice. The Lord's Supper and the agape, love, charity, were meals of real food, shared whenever the saints came together for a meeting. And when the Lord visited them after the resurrection, he routinely shared a real meal with them, in which he provided the food, looking forward to the time when they would all share in the new wine of the world to come. The Lord gave lunch to the people in the first place simply because they were hungry, they needed it, and he was moved with compassion. He both fed them and taught them, but the knowledge was worth far more than the food. He told them not to labor for that. When he miraculously produced the lunch, they wanted to accept him as their prophet and king, even as the Nephites, who, when they had eaten and were filled, all burst out in one joyful chorus of praise and thanksgiving. Why the excitement? Hadn't they ever eaten dinner before? That had nothing to do with it. What thrilled them was seeing clearly and unmistakably the hand of the giver, and knowing for themselves exactly where it all comes from, and that it can never fail. Now, if we ask, who at these love feasts got the biggest share or ate the most, we at once betray the poverty and absurdity of our own precious work ethic. Such questions would be nothing short of blasphemous to all present, as if one were to interrupt the ordinances and stop the feast by announcing, Hold it right there, you people. Don't you know that there is no free lunch? The free lunch looms large in the Sermon on the Mount. First, the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. This comes with the understanding, expressed in the same sentence, that in return we are to show the same free and liberal spirit toward each other that he does to all of us, and forgive our debts as we forgive our debtors. Next comes fasting, a most effective reminder of God's generosity to us, and also of our complete dependence on him, a thing to be joyfully acknowledged. Then an all-important principle. You cannot have it both ways. You cannot work for both employers. You cannot lay up treasures both on earth and in heaven. You cannot divide your heart between them. For to one master or the other, you must give your whole and undivided devotion. Both employers demand that, but only one of them can have it. You must go one way or the other. There can be no compromise. No man can serve two masters. Love and hate cannot be divided up between them. Ye cannot serve God and mammon. Mammon being to this day the regular Hebrew word for business, particularly money and banking. You must not yield to the enticings of that other master, nor let his threat of no lunch if you leave my employ intimidate you. You must ignore him and his arguments completely. Take no thought for your life, what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink, nor yet what ye shall put on. All such things are taken care of for God's creatures. Behold the fowls of the air, your heavenly Father feeds them. Are ye not much better than they? It was the practice in Sodom and Gomorrah, we are told, to rob all strangers of their money and then let them starve to death because they could not buy food. And the city's inhabitants would put nets over their trees so that the birds would have no free lunch on their fruit. 
For Abraham, such meanness, as we have seen, was the last straw, and he cursed them in the name of his God. On the subject of dress and appearance, the same rule holds as for lunch. Sufficient covering is necessary, but don't go beyond that. If you cannot add a cubit to your stature, don't try to add other splendors to your person that it does not possess. Forget the obsession with an impressive appearance that goes with aspiring to the executive lunch, dressing for success. Simply appear as what you are, and don't fuss so much about it. Therefore, he says again, take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? The Gentiles spend their time going after these things, but you are not Gentiles. Now comes a most enlightening explanation of the economics of the gospel, the answer to the natural question, how shall we get on in the world if we don't even think about such things? The injunction, take no thought, must be taken seriously, since it is one of the most oft-repeated in the scriptures, occurring in all the gospels, in the Book of Mormon, and the Doctrine and Covenants. Here the formula, all these things, applies specifically to what we must eat, drink, and wear, food and covering. It occurs three times as an objective clause, and the key word is seek. In the same breath, we are told that the Gentiles seek after all these things, but we are definitely not to seek after them. We are to be busy seeking after something else, the kingdom of God and his, its, righteousness. But what about the other things? Won't we need food and clothing too? Of course they are very important, and you can rest assured that your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things, and he will provide them. If you have enough faith to trust him and spend your days seeking what he wants you to seek, he will provide all these things as you need them. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added. It has become customary to interpret this as meaning that one should first go on a mission or get a testimony some other way, and then turn to the business of getting ahead in the world. But the word for first means first in every sense. First and foremost, before all else, in preference to all else, and so on. It usually refers to time, but not in this passage, we are not told to seek first the kingdom and then seek all these things. Nothing whatever is said about seeking them except the explicit command not to seek them. There is no idea of a time sequence here. Does one ever stop seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness in this life? Or was there ever a time before, during, or after a mission when one did not need food and clothing? We are not to seek them ever for God supplies them ever. The same teachings of the Lord are summarized in Luke chapter 12, where he makes it quite clear that the command to take no thought applies not only to the apostles, but to the entire church. He illustrates the principle of taking no thought for the morrow by the story of a man big in agribusiness, though it is only fair to note that it was a particularly fertile piece of ground and not the owner that brought forth plentifully and that the man himself did not, of course, do any work in the field. When, with foresight and planning, he had completed his arrangements for a splendid retirement, he congratulated himself, saying, My soul, take thine ease, eat, 
drink, and be merry. The deluxe lunch assured complete independence forever, with no humiliating necessity of praying for daily bread. But God said unto him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Shouldn't he have worked for lunch at all then? Answer, he should neither have made it the goal of his labors, nor got it by manipulating others. God is not pleased with those who rebuff his offer of free lunch with pious sermons about the work ethic. A certain king made a marriage for his son and sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding, and they would not come. Again he sent forth, saying, I have prepared my dinner, and all things are ready. But they made light of it, and went their ways, one to his farm, another to his merchandise. Back to the office and the farm, as they virtuously called attention to solid work to be done, and made light of mere partying. Yet it was a gross insult to their generous host. Deny not the gifts of God, is the final plea of the Book of Mormon. Who would despise such gifts? We do by not asking for them. Yea, I know that God will give liberally to him that asketh. And they receive not because they ask not. Moroni enumerates the spiritual gifts in the last chapter of the Book of Mormon, yet we rarely ask for these gifts today. They don't particularly interest us. There is only one that we do ask for in all sincerity and duly receive, and that, for obvious reasons, is the gift of healing. But the other gifts? Who cares for them? We make light of them and prefer the real world of everyday life. We do not even ask for the temporal gifts because we don't want them either as gifts. Ye are cursed because of your riches, says Samuel to the people of Zarahemla, and also are your riches cursed. Why? For two reasons. Number one, because you have set your hearts upon them. And number two, you have not hearkened unto the words of him who gave them unto you. Ye do not remember the Lord your God in the things with which he hath blessed you, but ye do always remember your riches, not to thank the Lord your God for them. They wanted the riches desperately, worked for them diligently, and were obsessed with them once they had them. But they simply would not accept them as gifts, but only as earnings. Today we have gone so far as to drop the idea of unearned increment and insist on labeling all income, even that of which the recipient is totally unaware, as earnings. Nobody is going to make us accept welfare. Enough is enough. Having food and raiment, says Paul to Timothy, let us be therewith content. We must have sufficient for our needs in life's journey, but to go after more is forbidden. Though you have your God-given free agency to do so, our real wants are very limited, says Brigham. When you have what you wish to eat and sufficient clothing to make you comfortable, you have all that you need. I have all that I need. How many people need to eat two lunches a day? We all eat too much, wear too much, and work too much. Brigham says if we all work less, wear less, eat less, we shall be a great deal wiser, healthier, and wealthier people than by taking the course we now do. It should not take too much hard work to assure anyone of the makings of a lunch. But what is one to do after that? That is the question. Aristotle's famous dictum in the Nicomachean Ethics 1 
that our proper function on earth is not just to live, but to live well. To live as we can and should reminds us that there should be no serious economic problems at the human level. After all, mice, cockroaches, elephants, butterflies, and dolphins have all solved the economic problem. Their mere existence on earth after thousands of years of vicissitudes is adequate proof that they have found the secret of survival. Can we do no better than to dedicate all our time and energy to solving just that one problem, as if our whole object in life were simply lunch? What is a man, asks Shakespeare, if his chief good and market of his time be but to sleep and feed? A beast no more. Sure he that made us with such large discourse, looking before and after, gave us not that capability and godlike reason to fust in us unused? And what is it to be used for? Those very popular how-to-get-rich books, which are the guides to the perplexed of the present generation, say we should keep our minds fixed at all times on just one objective. The person who lets his thoughts wander away from anything but business, even for a moment, does not deserve the wealth he seeks. Such is the high ethic of the youth today, and such an ethic places us not on the level of the beast, but below it. For today, many a TV documentary will show you the beasts of the field, not spending their days perpetually seeking out and consuming each other for lunch, as we have been taught, but in pleasant relaxation, play, family fun, bathing, exploring, for many of them have lively curiosity, grooming, sparring, and much happy napping, and so on. Even the most efficient killers hunt only every few days when they are really hungry, kill only weaker members of the herds, thus strengthening the stock, and never take more than they need, usually sharing it with others. We see leopards, lions, and tigers between meals calmly loping through herds of exotic ungulates who hardly bother to look up from their grazing at the passing visitors. It is only the human predator who keeps a 24-hour lookout for victims in the manner prescribed in the flourishing contemporary success literature. No free lunch easily directs our concern to nothing but lunch. The adversary keeps us to that principle, making lunch our full-time concern, either by paying workers so little that they must toil day and night just to afford lunch, his favorite trick, or by expanding the lunch need to include all the luxury and splendor that goes with the super-executive Marriott lunch, about which Paul's letter to Timothy is most instructive. Let us return to it considering the passage in the original. Having adequate nourishment and decent covering, we shall with these suffice ourselves. But those who want to be rich fall into temptation, a test, and a snare, a trap, noose, decoy, and into hankering for many things, a passionate desire to possess, which are silly, mindless, senseless, and harmful, and which drag, plunge, human beings down to ruin, deadly danger, and utter destruction. For the root of all evil doings is the desire for money, being driven by which people have gone astray, got lost from the faith, and become hopelessly involved in agonizing situations, rapids, pangs. But thou, O man of God, keep away from these things, the Lord teaches the same lesson when he tells how members of the church fall away because of the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches 
and the lusts of other things entering in, which choke the word, and it becometh unfruitful, fruitless, barren. The parables of the Lord are particularly rich in matters relevant to the free lunch, and in them Jesus appeals before all things against meanness of spirit. What could be more abominable than to offend one of these little ones, taking advantage of the helpless? What shall we say of one who uses the gifts that God has given him to take from others, no matter how legally, the gifts God intends to give them? The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king. One was brought unto him which owed him ten thousand talents. The servant fell down, saying, Lord, have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. Then the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion, and forgave the debt. But the same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants, which owed him an hundred pence, and he laid hands on him, and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me that thou owest, and had him taken to prison. It was all perfectly legal. We cannot legislate pity and compassion. Altruism, argued Anne Rand, is the greatest weakness in our society, and the greatest obstacle to the unhindered operation of free enterprise. But the kingdom of heaven, of which the Lord is here speaking, does not operate on that principle. O thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all that debt, because thou desirest me, said the Lord. Shouldest not thou also have had compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee? Then the king delivered him to the tormentors, till he should pay all that was due to him. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if ye from your hearts forgive not every one his brother their trespasses, or debts, the word is afete, cancel a debt. And you are to be equal. For the last days everyone has been invited to work for the kingdom, with singleness of purpose, and to enjoy the free lunch of the saints. The first words of the Lord to the youthful Joseph, after he had introduced himself in the grove, were, Behold, the world lieth in sin at this time, and none doeth good, no, not one. And mine anger is kindling against the inhabitants of the earth, to visit them according to this ungodliness. That being the present situation, we may well ask just what it is that renders the present world so depraved. The answer is loud and clear. Behold, the beasts of the field and the fowls of the air, and that which cometh of the earth, is ordained for the use of man, for food and for raiment, and that he might have in abundance. Malthus was wrong. There is no need for grabbing, for the earth is full, and there is enough and to spare. And what is wrong just now? But it is not given that one man should possess that which is above another. Wherefore the world lieth in sin. So that is where the offense lies. Some are taking more than they should, and using the power it gives them over others to make them do their bidding. But how much is too much? And woe be unto man that sheddeth blood, or that wasteth flesh, and hath no need. The one criterion for taking is need, specifically for food and raiment, not for sport or display. We begin, as in the other scriptures, with the basic principle that everything we have is a free gift from God. The earth is my very handiwork, and all things therein are mine, 
And behold, this is the way that I, the Lord, have decreed to provide for my saints. That does not mince matters, but gets right down to business. He wants us all equal, that the poor shall be exalted, in that the rich are made low. And he wants to make us co-workers in the project, which is all for our benefit. It is expedient that I, the Lord, should make every man accountable, as a steward over earthly blessings, which I have made and prepared for my creatures. He wants all his creatures to enjoy his bounty, with never a mention of who is worthy or deserving, as ever, the only principle of distribution is that of need. You are to be equal, or in other words, you are to have equal claims on the properties for your stewardships, every man according to his wants and his needs, inasmuch as his wants are just. That limitation on wants is important, since one often wants what one should not have. A want is justified only when it is a true need, and, as we have seen, our real needs are few, food and raiment, mansions and yachts not included. In introducing this particular revelation, the Lord repeats for the third time what he has said in the grove. The anger of God kindleth against the inhabitants of the earth, and none doeth good, for all have gone out of the way. And always the same reason is given for that anger, that men withhold God's gifts from each other in a power game, and that this is the prevailing evil of the age. How do we distribute it then? I have given unto the children of men to be agents unto themselves. You are perfectly free to make all the money you can, just as you are perfectly free to break any one of the Ten Commandments, as millions do every day, though God has forbidden it, as he has forbidden seeking for riches, but your behavior, once you have entered a covenant with God, will be judged by the standards he sets. Therefore, if any man shall take of the abundance which I have made, and impart not his portion, according to the law of my gospel, unto the poor and the needy, he shall, with the wicked, lift up his eyes in hell, being in torment. A clear reference to the rich man who fed Lazarus the beggar with crumbs. Modern revelation has some interesting things to say about idlers. Let every man be diligent in all things, and the idler shall not have place in the church. We are all to work in the kingdom and for the kingdom, and the inhabitants of Zion also shall remember their labors, inasmuch as they are appointed to labor, for the idler shall be had in remembrance before the Lord." Note that it is not the withholding of lunch, but the observant eye of the Lord that admonishes the idler. This refers to all of us as laborers in Zion, and the laborer in Zion shall labor for Zion, for if they labor for money, they shall perish. That is the theme here. Now, I, the Lord, am not well pleased with the inhabitants of Zion, for there are idlers among them. They also seek not earnestly the riches of eternity, but their eyes are full of greediness. An idler in the Lord's book is one who is not working for the building up of the kingdom of God on earth and the establishment of Zion, no matter how hard he may be working to satisfy his own greed. Latter-day Saints prefer to ignore that distinction as they repeat a favorite maxim of their own invention. 
that the idler shall not eat the bread or wear the clothing of the laborer. And what an ingenious argument they make of it. The director of a Latter-day Saint Institute was recently astounded when this writer pointed out to him that the ancient teaching that the idler shall not eat the bread of the laborer has always meant that the idle rich shall not eat the bread of the laboring poor, as they always have. To serve the classes that are living on them, Brigham Young reports from England, the poor, the laboring men and women, are toiling, working their lives out to earn that which will keep a little life in them. Lunch is what they get out of it, and no more. Is this equality? No. What is going to be done? The Latter-day Saints will never accomplish their mission until this inequality shall cease on the earth. But the institute director was amazed because he had always been taught that the idle poor should not eat the bread of the laboring rich because it is perfectly obvious that a poor man has not worked as hard as a rich man. With the same lucid logic, my Latter-day Saint students tell me that there were no poor in the Zion of Enoch because only the well-to-do were admitted to the city. But quite apart from who works hardest, how can the meager and insufficient lunch of a poor child possibly deprive a rich man's dinner table of the vital proteins and calories he needs? It can only be the other way around. The extra food on the rich man's table does not belong to him, says King Benjamin, but to God, and he wants the poor man to have it. The moral imperative of the work ethic is by no means the eternal law we assume it to be, for it rests on a completely artificial and cunningly contrived theory of property. Few seem to be aware today that less than 50 years ago it was considered among the upper classes of England to be a disgrace to work for a living, and the landed gentry refused intimate contact with families who were in trade, in other words, business. It is custom alone, and not an eternal law of nature, that gives us our attitude toward these things. A common objection to the economic equality on which the scriptures insist is that it would produce a drab, monotonous sameness among us. But that sameness already exists. We all have about the same number of eyes, ears, arms, and legs. Few people are twice as tall or twice as short as the average, and Binet was unable to come up with an IQ double the average. Also, few of us need two lunches a day. We might as well face it. We are all very much alike in such things, though the thought mortally offends some people. It is in the endless reaches of the mind, expanding forever in all directions, that infinite variety invites us, with endless space for all so that none need be jealous of another. It is those who seek distinction in costly apparel, living quarters, diversions, meals, cars, and estates, who become the slaves of fashion and the most stereotyped people on earth. And it is because communism is a dialectical materialism that it is the drabbest show of all, though our rival establishment is not far behind. You may say, says Brigham, if we live, we must eat, drink, and wear clothing, and he that provideth not for his own household has denied the faith, and is worse than an infidel. By providing, the same writer means food and raiment, and therewith content. Numberless arguments of this kind will present themselves to the minds of the people, 
to call them away from the line of their duty. It is Satan's clever decoy to that fervid consumerism, Veblen's conspicuous consumption, that is a confession of mental, moral, and spiritual bankruptcy. Brigham Young also noted, however, that if the wealth were equally distributed one fine day, it would not be long before it would be as unequal as ever, the lion's share going to the most dedicated and competent seekers for it. True enough. But wealth is not lunch, and to make it such is an offense against nature. Let us say the lunch is equally distributed one day, and soon one man, because of his hustle, is sitting daily on 70,000 lunches, while many people are going without. He generously offers them the chance to work for him and get their lunches back, but they must work all day, just for him and just for lunch. Lunch and the satisfaction of helping their generous employer to get hold of yet more lunches, for that is the object of their work, are all they get out of it. Is this an exaggeration? Come with me to the mines of Scotland, in which my grandparents toiled, as described by them and by Her Majesty's Commission on the Labor of Women and Children in Mines, 1842. Children are taken into these mines to work as early as four years of age, often from seven to eight, while from eight to nine is the ordinary age. Female children begin to work in these mines at the same early ages as the males. Parish apprentices, who are bound to serve their masters until twenty-one years of age, shall receive only food and clothing. Lunch is what they live for. The employment, assigned to the youngest children, requires that they should be in the pit as soon as the work of the day commences, and not leave the pit before the work of the day is at an end. Children engaged in it are commonly excluded from light and are always without companions. In some districts they remain in solitude and darkness during the whole time they are in the pit. Many of them never see the light of day for weeks together. From six years old and upwards, the hard work begins, requiring the unremitting exertion of all the physical power which the young workers possess. Both sexes are employed together in precisely the same kind of labor. All commonly work almost naked. In the east of Scotland, where the Nibleys were so employed, a much larger proportion of children and young persons are employed, and the chief part of their labor consists in carrying the coals on their backs up steep ladders. The regular hours of work for children are rarely less than eleven. More often they are twelve. In some districts they are thirteen, and in one district they are generally fourteen and upwards. In the great majority of these mines, night work is part of the ordinary system of labor. The labor is generally uninterrupted by any regular time set apart for rest and refreshment, what food is taken in the pit being eaten as best it may while the labor continues. Why not? If there is no free lunch, why should there be a free lunch hour? In many mines, the conduct of the adult colliers to the children is harsh and cruel. The persons in authority in these mines, who must be cognizant of this ill usage, never interfere to prevent it. Little interest is taken by the coal owners in the children. In all the coal fields, accidents of a fearful nature are extremely frequent. No money appears to be expended with a view to secure the safety, much less the comfort, of the workpeople. Very generally, in the east of Scotland, the food is poor in quality, 
and insufficient in quantity. The children themselves say that they have not enough to eat, and the sub-commissioners describe them as covered with rags, confining themselves to their homes on the Sundays, because they have no clothes to go in. Notwithstanding the intense labor performed by these children, they do not procure even sufficient food and raiment. The employment in these mines commonly produces stunted growth of the body. The long hours of work, etc., in all the districts, deteriorates the physical constitution. The limbs become crippled and the body distorted. Muscular powers give way. This class of the population is commonly extinct soon after 50. One thinks of the infamous Roman mines, the ultimate in human horror stories. Yet the workers there were all condemned criminals and enemies captured as slaves. These in Great Britain were innocent little children. No free lunch to undermine their characters. The pious mine owners even waived the sacred imperative of the Sabbath in their case. Even that yielded to the sanctity of the work ethic. A custom bearing with extreme hardship upon children and young persons is that of continuing the work without any interruption whatever during the Sunday, when the labor is continued for 24 hours in succession, a 24-hour shift to make up for the every other Sunday they have off. When some proprietors tried doing away with the system, it was found that it was without disadvantage to their works. They lost nothing. Yet even after it was shown unprofitable, the custom still prevails. Better break the Sabbath than lose the honest day's work these kids owe you. The triumph of the work ethic is complete. Of course, the mine owners and their lawyers responded with moral fervor to the charges in the report. They freely admitted that the condition in the mines, in regard both to ventilation and drainage, is lamentably defective. But what can they do about that? To render them safe does not appear to be practicable by any means yet known. So don't hold them responsible. Again, if persons in authority in these mines never interfere to prevent harsh and cruel treatment, it is because, as they distinctly state, that they do not conceive that they have any right to do so. Let us keep this on a high moral plane. It is the owner's own business what they do with their property. If no money at all is expended with a view to secure safety, remember, that would be confiscatory. Need we be reminded that in 1982, a very devout senator from Utah labored to cut federal mine inspection in half to save money for the mining companies. If the kids work in passages so small that even the youngest children cannot move along them without crawling on their hands and feet, in which unnatural and constrained posture they drag the loaded carriages after them, again, I ask you, is anyone to blame for that? Did the owners create those thin seams of coal? To quote the report, as it is impossible by any outlay compatible with a profitable return to render such coal mines fit for human beings to work in, they never will be placed in such a condition of fitness and consequently they never can be worked without inflicting great and irreparable injury on the health of the children. So, you see, there is just no way around it. The work must go on, since the coal is a main source of our national wealth and greatness, which makes the mine owners benefactors of the human race. Also, bear in mind that if, notwithstanding the intense labor performed by these children, 
They do not procure even sufficient food and raiment. It is, in general, because of their idle and dissolute parents who spend the hard-earned wages of their offspring at the public house. Though nearly all of the parents worked in the mines too, very many of them were too crippled by sickness or injury to continue. But that is no excuse for getting drunk. Of course, we must not overlook the fun side of working in the mines. The coal mine, when properly ventilated and drained, and the side passages of tolerable height, is not only not unhealthy, but is considered as a place of work more salubrious and even agreeable than that in which many kinds of labor are carried on above ground. An eloquent commentary on those other kinds of labor. And the excitement of it, where seams of coal are so thick that the horses go direct to the workings, or in which the side passages from the workings to the horseways are not of any great length, the lights in the main ways render the situation of these children comparatively less cheerless, dull, and stupefying. Here the little nippers could pop out of the side passages and take a look at the magnificent sight of a feeble line of lights burning in the damp and murking main passage. And when you hear a horse car actually go by, what a thrill! And rest and relaxation? From the nature of the employment, intervals of a few minutes necessarily occur during which the muscles are not in active exertion. So it is not necessary, after all, to interrupt the work by any regular time set apart for rest and refreshment. What food is taken in the pit being eaten as best it may while the labor continues. And that labor builds strong bodies. The labor in which children are chiefly employed, namely in pushing the loaded carriages of coals, is a description of exercise which, while it greatly develops the muscles of the arms, shoulders, chest, back, and legs, without confining any part of the body, affords an equally healthful excitement to all the other organs. So who are they to complain if they are crippled at the ages of thirty and forty, and extinct soon after fifty? The story of the mines has been told not to harrow up our souls, but as a gentle reminder that the principles and practices of the nineteenth-century industrialists are still wholly and enthusiastically endorsed by the people of our own society, in proof of which we could cite present-day instances almost, if not quite as horrendous as Grandpa's stories of Bonnie Scotland. The reason things have not changed lies in the basic nature of those principles, of necessity stern and inflexible. A thing is either free or it is not. A free lunch would have to be for everybody, and that would never do in the real world in which we live. The communists are even more insistent than we are on having a world in which everybody must work, work, work for lunch, with no other expectation in time or eternity than a booming economy here and now. Their periodic slumps and collapses are as predictable as our own, but that will not correct their fanatical obsession with a single way of doing things. We are wasting our time talking about free lunch in the world as we know it. But the world as we know it is the very antithesis of Zion, in which we should all be living at this very moment. I have cited a few passages from the Pearl of Great Price, Old Testament, New Testament, Book of Mormon, and Doctrine and Covenants, to show that whether we like it or not, in all those five dispensations of the gospel, 
the free lunch was prescribed for all living under the covenant, and at the same time very special kinds of work were assigned to each and all of them, the object of which was not lunch, but the building up of the kingdom and the establishment of Zion. Our real temporal wants, we have been told repeatedly, are few, and they are taken care of by the law of consecration. And in every dispensation, failure to act on principles that they promised and covenanted to observe, the most important being the law of love, has brought to an end the felicity of God's people and covered them with confusion as their enemies prevailed against them. No one is more completely of the world than one who lives by the world's economy, whatever his display of open piety. Thus Moses sums it up. See, I have set before thee this day life and good, and death and evil, blessing and cursing. We have already seen what is required of us to merit the blessing, and to these things Moses adds a useful list of the worst crimes that Israel is likely to commit, the most certain to incur the cursing. There are eleven sins in the list. All of them are of a secret and underhanded nature, and at least eight of them consist in taking advantage of weaker parties. The essence of evil being thus clearly exposed, the rationalizing, theorizing, and legalizing of the dialectical materialists on either side of the Iron Curtain is irrelevant to the issue, which is that anyone who can argue that it is permissible to deny food to the hungry when we have food shall with the wicked lift up his eyes in hell. This started out to be an exhilarating study of the pleasures and advantages of the free lunch, but as it progressed it became more and more depressing as the relevant scriptures accumulated and the gulf steadily widened between the Zion of God and those Babylonian institutions in our midst that brazenly bear the fair name of Zion as a gimmick to promote local business. We are being asked, even at this moment, to choose between the peculiar economy that God has prescribed for us and what we have always considered the more realistic, convenient, and expedient economy by which the world lives and in which, at the moment, it is convulsively gasping and struggling to survive. The difference between the two orders is never more apparent than at lunchtime. In the homely perennial ordinance, that was meant to unite us all for a happy hour, but which instead divides God's children with the awful authority and finality of the last judgment, in which, by the way, the Lord assures us that the seating order is going to be completely reversed.